get into arguments with some people about still shooting film. Could you expound on that a little bit more? Yeah, I say this is this is more online than in person. I wouldn't really call them arguments, but uh, I um, in one case in point where. Um, Someone was posting something about a new camera that had just come out that does film emulation. And they said, it, you know, it's all of these different film stocks. And I just sort of cheekily said, you know, why not just get real? Just be real. Shoot the real thing. Exactly. And uh, it went – I had people go off on me. And they're like, well, film is so expensive. And uh, I said, well, not nearly as expensive as fast-appreciating tech. But um, – <laughs> So it's, uh, you know, it, and then I got people coming in and, and saying, well, you know, you've people with the film people are always on your high horse about it. And uh, so it's um, it's it's always like a, a push and pull about film, it seems, um, which it shouldn't be. And my I think my final salvo after which people kept on posting on that was look it's everybody's workflow is different um there's room in this world for all different kinds of approaches to things and certainly you know digital can do some things that film can't but for my own particular workflow it's 100 percent film it's just yeah. um, there, to, there, to me there's no um there's no passion to digital right um, it's uh you know it's it's it does some things better like you know, low light and, and that sort of thing. But uh, it wouldn't be something that uh, I think if, if film went away entirely, I'm not sure if I'd be shooting anymore. I'd be doing something different. Do yeah. they make low light film? They make Kodak. Does Kodak still make Trax 3200 or did Fuji make a Neopan 1600 still? Uh, there's no Fuji 1600. Kodak reissued. Um, the 3200, which is the T-Max 3200. T-Max, um, right. Ilford makes a 3200, but T-Max 3200 is... Just like I, tri- it, regular it, T-Max, just like... Yeah, well, T-Max 3200 is a resident 1,000-speed film, I think, which you can push to 3200. Right, right, right. right. Oh, which, okay. um, which, frankly, after running through many, many rolls of it, I finally got the sweet spot, uh, which is shooting it at 16, developing it at 32 in Extol. Right. But uh, Ilford 3200 also exists, right. um, and of course, you know it's you can push HP5, and but I mean pushing film, pushing film is a whole different right. ballgame. And Ilford's kind of like my sense of it is that it has a little less contrast in it, or it's like kind of like a softer palette than the Kodak. Yeah, it it does. I mean, the Ilford films across the board have less contrast, right. but that also gives them more flexibility if you right. want to push. Right, them. that's what I was going to say, is that maybe when pushing it, then it adds all that contrast and it's not like super heavy. Yeah, it, it, it's, I mean, I like taking HP5, I mean, particularly with the increases in pr- film prices from Kodak, I've, I've moved from Tri-X to HP5, and I push it one stop or two stops usually, and um, you know, of course, you're losing a little bit of your dynamic range. You got to watch out about blowing out highlights, mm. but um, mm. but uh, it's it, it looks nice. I think it looks great. Push two stops. And you, you usually develop your film here, or do you like uh, rent a space at a community lab and then bring in your no, own? I do it. I don't. It's if, uh, any any community labs I've seen, and, and even dark rooms. I mean, it's the hygienic standards are terrible. The tanks are all dirty and everything. But right. no, I you know I I process everything in my kitchen sink, and I have what. And someone told me they call a hybrid workflow. I mean, I scan everything. Mm, right. I, during the pandemic, I I, um, I did 
closed down my kitchen and put in larger in there and started printing. But, you know, the printing part of things, um, I, I listened to your other podcast, you were talking about the, the, uh, the, the time that it takes to print. And uh, it's just, I mean, I love the zen of developing film, but the trial and error of prints, even in black and white, is just forget about it. I'd rather do something else, like shoot. Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, how long have you been processing your own film? And, and I think when we met... You said you also bulk load sometimes from. Yeah, I bulk load. I mean, I that's I, bulk loading in the camera, right? Or bulk loading in the processing. Well, I bulk, I bulk load. I bulk load down into thirty-five canisters. Right. So oh, right. Okay. So you stuff a canister with way more frames than thirty-six. Well, that's different. You're talking. That's that's a different concept. I do. Oh, okay. I, I I I mean to in terms. Of, let's answer one thing at a time. In terms of the bulk loading. Um, yeah, I'll bulk load down. I mean, so there's so few f- emulsions that you really want available in bulk load right now. Uh, you know, hundred foot rolls. So I bulk load HP five, but I do stuff canisters. So ideally, you know, I uh, I like to get forty two frames so I can fill up an entire cheese. Nice. Um, and you can get about forty two frames in with HP five, which has a thinner backing. And Tri-X, you can't do that. Um, but the real bulk bulk loading that I do is for color, you know, my color workflow, which is I have pretty much abandoned Portra entirely. Oh, interesting. Um, and, you know, Portra, I, I have a love-hate relationship with Portra because if you're working in a, a workflow where you're scanning rather than printing, it, it scans terribly, I think. So you're always, like, adjusting your, your magentas. Um, and it's gotten super expensive now. Um but uh, so what I do is I buy direct from Kodak. I'll get a 400-foot roll of 500T. Um, I have a little gizmo that I made with a 2x4 and the box that came with the 500T. I break it down into 100-foot reels and then bulk load it into uh, 36, 36 exposure regular canisters. So I, get, I get 42 exposures in them. Cool. Um, wow. And, uh, and then I develop that out myself. And you do the color yourself? Yeah. Interesting. Wow. Wait, so how long have you been developing your own film? Um, You know, I did it back in high school. um, But then, you know, then the rest of life got involved. And I really only picked up developing again kind of a couple years before the pandemic. Oh, wow. So, um, and, uh, you know, I do both. I do C41, I do E6, and I do the black and white. Okay. And then just... For reference, uh, you said back in high school, you're currently 60 years old. I am 59. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I, no, I'm sorry. I, no, no, I'll be, I'll be, I'll be 60 soon enough. So I'll be 40 know. soon enough. Yeah. It's, uh, and they taught uh, they taught color chemistry processing in high school. No, they did. Okay. That was just something I picked up. I mean, right. it's um, you know, it, when I was I don't know 12. My grandfather gave me an E6 processing kit because back then I was shooting uh ectochrome and kodachrome of course i didn't you can't develop kodachrome yourself um so uh i learned how to develop ectochrome and uh you know it's one of the great fallacies about developing color film is um youtube is the most horrible thing because the people who are on youtube really don't know what they're doing they they'll take they'll they'll take a roll of film and they'll develop it and they'll kind of tell you the mistakes that they've made they don't really tell you the workflow that really results in the result that you want right and I think that one of the great fallacies is temperature that you have to maintain within a half a degree of 102.5 because that's what the C41 process from Colgate, from uh, from uh, Kodak says. I stand develop C41. Mm. That, that means room temperature. 
yeah, room temperature, I'll just throw a couple of rolls in, in old chemistry and it comes out fine. I mean, it doesn't come out as nice as if you do it by the process, but it's, uh, I mean, there's it's still functional. It's still functional and there's a lot of leeway. And if you develop it yourself, um, it's, I mean, my particular, the imagery that I like, I like a lot of contrast and I like a lot of saturation. And uh, by your agitations and by your temperature, just like in black and white, you can begin to control what that looks like. Whereas if you right. just send it away to a lab, they're going to yeah. put it through their roller machines or their dip and dunk machines, right. and it's all going to look the same. Right. And so you like take notes on how you're agitating it or just kind of remember um, and then like maybe apply that or try something new the next time to be able to. Yeah. It's, I mean, you, you, you know, you'll, you'll move one variable. Right. I mean, there's so many different variables in the, you know, how long you, you use, you're using in, in C41 or any color process. Are you using a separate bleach and, bleach and fixer or using Blix? Um, how long are you keeping your chemistry in there? What's the temperature? What sort of agitations? And then, you know, you get in, in washing. Washing is very important with color. Um, and then you get down to the workflow that you want. Yeah. yeah. How much longer do you think they're going to make color processing? Oh, I think chemistry. color processing is going to be around forever. Really? Because look at the, look at the film industry. I mean, it's, it's totally right. Good point. I mean, so you know, Kodak is. Yeah, I mean, Kodak is supporting Vision Three, and Vision Three is the most technologically advanced film that there is. And I think that uh, the latest version of Portra, which is probably the most advanced color film that that uh, Kodak makes, is a spinoff of Vision Three. Portra Eight Hundred is not Port. Portra Eight Hundred is an older emulsion. Oh. Which I actually like better. I think it looks better than Portrait 400. Oh, interesting. Um, but uh, but with 500T, what I do is now all almost all of my color work is done in 500T, which of course has the Remjet yeah. in it. Um, What's a Remjet? A Remjet is a uh, an anticulation backing, which is sort of a. Well, I think it's a carbon based with some sort of adhesive. Okay. And so basically what happens is you can't send that to your local lab because it's going to gum up their works. So the remjet needs to be removed. And uh, I know you're familiar with CineStill 800, uh-huh. right? So CineStill, what they do is they remove the remjet first, which is why you get all of that crazy halation if you shoot it at night, like yeah, the hot right. red spots red, around yeah. lights and things like that. But you don't get that if the anti-halation layer is there. And... It's a it's a color film that's meant to um, that's designed for cinema. It's designed for an internegative process, so it's designed to be developed in what's called the ECN three process, which uses a different developer. ECN three is basically the same thing as C forty one, except for there's a different developer. This is okay. my understanding. Right, okay. It's you know it, it's uh, everybody has different opinions, um, and. Uh, and if you send, there are some places that will, that will develop ECN3, but the two big different things about an ECN3 development are the color developer is different. It's, uh, it's less contrasty because it's designed to be able to back up to an internegative for film, for you know, cinema work. And the second thing is getting rid of this anti-alation layer. Um, and my own particular workflow, if you go to the ECN process, ECN process is meant to be done at 107 degrees. I don't know as though there's any reason why the developer needs 107 degrees. And I was thinking about this one time, and what, and, and through trial and error, I found out that it's the anti-halation layer removal that requires 107 degrees. So what I do is I'll take a three-roll Patterson tank that's filled with three, 336 reels of, uh, of the 500T, 
And for each reel, I put a, um, a tablespoon of baking soda in 120 degree water. Baking soda lowers the temperature to about 107, mm-hmm. and it needs that 107, and it, it washes all of that anticulation layer off. I'll do a final wipe at the end. Um, but I develop that film in, in not in the ECN3 development chemicals, but C41. Oh, okay. And what that allows me to do is get extra speed out of the film. Oh, interesting. So, and this is why if you go to Sydney Still, Sydney Still has, you know, they're, what they, they, they take 500T, strip the anti-halation layer off, and call it an 800-speed film. Mm. They've done the same thing with 250D, and they call it 400D. Right. So I don't know why, how they claim to get that speed boost. They say it's something from taking the anti-halation layer off, but I don't think it is. It's cross-processing that film, and C41 gives you speed. Mm. So, and some people say it gets funky colors. I have no idea where they're coming from because I can show you what my 500T work looks like and you'll say, wow, the color's great. Yeah. I mean, it's it's heavily saturated, yeah. which is what I like. Me too. Yeah, that's what drew um, me to it. Yeah, I like, I like the saturation. I like the contrast. Right. Um, um, but you've never been able to – Kodachrome is still the one film that you've never been able to develop yourself? You can't develop Kodachrome yourself because the the color is actually infused. From what I understand, the color is infused in the the film during the development process. Wow. Okay. So, um, I mean, I shot Kodachrome. I shot a lot of Kodachrome back in the day. We're it's jealous. <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah. you know, um, I don't know why uh, Kodak decided to abandon it. Um, I can't think of the last time I shot Kodachrome. It was probably in the early '80s. But um, it back, was when a, the, back when there was real Kodachrome. Back when there was real Kodachrome. Because anyway, I shot some in the mid-2000s that I think was like fake Kodachrome. <laughs> no, I think they had like redone the process or something and it wasn't as similar. I'll look it up. They, yeah. they, they may have relabeled some of the Ektachrome. But the, I mean, Ektachrome and Kodachrome had a very different look. And I mean, don't forget when you're looking at these films, they're designed to be projected, right? Oh, so, right. you know, so a lot of the color, I mean, people talk about ectochrome and say, oh, it's too blue. It, it's, um, the reds aren't very right, good. Right, but you put yeah. a yellow bulb through it. Yeah, you're putting a, you know, a, a tungsten bulb, which is, you know, hot and bright behind it, and all yeah. of a sudden the colors are popping. That's a great point. I never thought of it's it a, like that, yeah. Well, I love all this tech talk, but I want to go back <laughs> to when you said you were 12 and you... Is, is that when you really first started doing photography through your even, grandfather? It was even before that. I mean, okay. it's, you know, it's, I mean, look at the, 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 think about the time, right? I mean, the, the nature of photography is very different back then. So you, 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 you know, you, you roll back to the late 1960s. You have three major networks. Um, there's no internet. Um, it's, uh, I mean, geez, the, uh, you know, newsreels were in films up until right. 1967 <laughs> right, and wow. you know wow, it's it's primetime tv went color in 1966 so i mean there were still you know there was still black and white tv um but i guess my point is you know radio was big and so you know, visually photography was a much bigger thing yeah. right so you know when when i look back at the things that i really liked about photography is it you know in popular culture, it Look magazine, you had Life magazine. Um, you had uh, you know that was how we saw what our rock and roll stars looked like. How you know what was going on in Vietnam? Um, it yeah, it was, really pictured life. Yeah, it was. It gave us it, access to different places and people and. 
it's in you know in in photographers were the rock stars back then it's uh you 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 would go someplace uh, let's pick a a great 1960s destination like niagara falls right um and you'd see in the gift shop these what then was 127 film these extra extra large slides um and take those home and they would be this highly saturated kodachrome and it would be great i mean so it'd be like it'd be like a positive that was already developed in sort of like a postcard way for you to be able to take this picture of niagara falls home exactly and that and also postcards look at postcards highly you know highly saturated so um so we were all surrounded by you know, photography in, you know, in, in a very different sort of way back then. Yeah. But also I was influenced by my maternal grandfather who was involved in the, um, the early days of live TV. And he was also a photographer and he did his own development. He was kind of a Renaissance man. He wow. was, um, and, um, and he really nurtured my interest in photography. Yeah. And, Do you know uh, where he grew up? Uh, he in grew up in upstate New York in, okay. in, in and around Syracuse. Okay. And, and that's where he worked at uh, WSYR TV. Um, and Kodak's in Rochester. In Rochester, okay. yeah, just an hour from Syracuse. Uh, about two hours west, I okay. think. It's or if you depends on how fast you drive. Yeah. <laughs> so wait, speaking of your grandfather, I know there's a connection with Betty Page. Can you talk a little bit about that? It's uh, he he had, he had, he did a lot of um, female photography, and he had uh, you know he he shot her at one point. Wow. Um, and I have the uh, the Kodachromes somewhere in uh, my house in New Jersey. Oh um, man! But uh, you know, he he did all kinds of photography and and not so much professional photography, although he did some of that. He was kind of I guess what you would call an advanced amateur because he was doing more TV production at the time. Um, and, uh, and so, in professional photography at that time would have been like photograph this for a magazine, photograph. This event, I mean, photograph an event, photograph, uh, do yeah, do do weddings, do portraits, um, right, and then like people would want pictures of themselves, especially if they were like trying to be an actor or a musician. Yeah, and it's I mean you look at the the portrait photography back then, a lot of it was black and white, it was hand colored, yeah. um, so there's you know it was a it was a, a very different sort of thing. Um, but through his interest in it, and he kind of nurtured my interest. Um, actually, he, he, didn't, he, he gave me some developing equipment. He was the one who gave me the E6 kit. Um, he didn't give me a camera, though. It wasn't that until after he, he died that I acquired his cameras. Okay. <laughs> but, um, but my other grandfather, my, my paternal grandfather, was kind of a gadgeteer. And so he, you know, back then, everybody had cameras to take home, you know, home photography and uh and some of them were quite nice. I mean, he had a Argus C3, no, Argus C4, which was sort of my first real kind of camera. Is that a medium format? No, that's a 35 millimeter foreign ca- format. Sort of looks like a oversized Leica. Oh, okay. uh, it had a great lens. And, um, you know, I would go around and shoot, uh, I think it was Kodachrome 25 and Ektachrome 25. I was very into the low speed films. Wow. And so I'd go out and you know the brightest part of the day the, the brightest part of the day in the winter you know okay. it's uh but th- those films were great because they just had no grain you could blow them up on the side of a wall and they would look gorgeous. oh really yeah. right 25 but, wow. um, but um so uh you know after that i sort of fast forward through uh, the 1970s when i was in high school uh i did a fair amount of photography i shot some things for the yearbook i was close to 
a local professional photographer who had hired me to do some of his work on a freelance basis. Um, and, uh, and you know, then I, I went to, late in high school, I finally got my, bought my real, real, first real nice camera. Yeah. I wanted the F2 that had just come out, um, but couldn't afford it. So I got a, um, a Nikon FTN and a 55 millimeter 1.2 um, Nikkor lens. Okay. And that was just, you know, at that point that the, the, the F was replaced by the F2. The F was on sale. It was like two or three year old camera. And it was just, I mean, it was amazing. Yeah. It, was, it was huge. Um, Actually, I wanted to know when you were in college in the seventies, were you in college in the eighties? I'm sorry, in the eighties. Yeah. yeah. But, Oh, actually I do want to go back to the seventies when you mm-hmm. were a teenager. Right. Um, because I asked you this before, but the climate when William Eggleston's show with the Museum of Modern Art, did you hear anybody talking about how much they hated it or how much they loved it? Did you get or? to see that show? No, no. I was, right. I was up in the mid, Midwest at the time. Right. Um, and don't forget, you know, I, I wasn't really influenced so much by famous photographers right. as, I, as I, I was by you know the the influences i had at the time were you know probably more from art or from pop culture or from magazines okay um you know i was heavily influenced by what i liked by you know what i saw in in print advertising at the time oh really uh, because print advertising was you know that's where some of the you know, saw a lot of great you know real iconic imagery um and uh, so I kind of, and, and plus, you know, National Geographic, Life and Look, as I mentioned. National Geographic was a big influence on me. Oh, okay. Just with images, because it's like, just this like booklet of images that you get to scroll through. Right. It was, I mean, that was, that was one way of seeing the world back when, you know, there, there maybe there would be, you'd look on Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom or something like that. that but uh, there just wasn't the breadth that you have now being able to look and see what something looks like. I mean, now you could just Google it on the internet, yeah. but yeah. it's uh national geographic was great. Yeah. What did your grandfather think of your work when you started getting serious about shooting? He didn't like it. Really? He just, now because he, he, because I shot color crumbs um, and he did, he shot a lot of color crumbs, but mostly for family. Um, he said, you have to do black and white. You have to shoot people. And uh, and it just it wasn't no, but you know here I am influenced by National Geographic. So what I would do is I was living in Ohio and walk down the abandoned railroad tracks in the snow and try to get something that looked pretty, but um, I wasn't so interested at the time in in photographing people. I was really into I was it was trying to capture what I was interested in at the time. Yeah, yeah. It's um, although I I did eventually shoot some black and white, but it was always back then almost all color. Okay, and let's fast forward. You said that a couple of years before COVID, that's when you started to really develop again. What what made you decide to develop your own film? Um, just because I I, I had enjoyed it, I had enjoyed that uh, the process. Um, and uh, I wanted more control over the imagery, yeah. Because it's you know I I picked I, I never really stopped photographing, uh, but it, the the photography was different. I, I I raised a family, and at that time I was shooting the kids in film and using Olympus styluses that are like all the rage now. Right. Um, but I wasn't using professional camera equipment. In fact, I'd sold my professional camera equipment in college to pay my college bills, and um, and it really wasn't until 
probably you know six or seven years ago that I started picking up equipment again. The first thing I bought was Nikon FTN, the same lens that I had that I sold. Um, and I went out and, and shot some color, shot some black and white, sent it over to LTI, and they did a great job. But I really wanted more control over how the imagery looked. And okay. so that's when I started developing again. I started with experimenting with Caffinol, and uh, which I really love Caffinol, but it's very hard to recreate exactly because every coffee is different, every, you know, so I, uh, then I went back to i remember using d76 back in the day and uh so started in with d76 and just pretty much everything else and, oh. and how much time do you think it takes to like three like a uh, one tank which has like three rolls of film in it pretty much mm-hmm. like how long does that take you to develop the film depends on what i'm developing and what i'm developing in i mean if, if i'm developing triax and d76 stock d76 at not pushing the film i mean it's uh it's six minutes and 75 seconds in the developer and then, you know, another five minutes in the fixer. But uh, it's funny. I just had this conversation with somebody else. I said uh, it, it, about how long it takes to develop is like asking a suburban commuter, talking to a suburban right. commuter who uh, say, oh, the train is only half an hour out there. But, yeah, you have to walk to the train. And, yeah, if by the time you take the film, you put it on the reels, uh, if I, I figure it's about do an you, hour a tank. Do okay. you ever get home? Well, I guess you have to wait until a couple rolls of film have been shot. But I just I wonder if it's like you're like, oh, I can't wait to develop this and do it myself right now. Yeah, I've done that. I did right. that last night. No, it's <laughs> <laughs> yeah. fun. Yeah. It's uh, I did because I, I, I think of it. I was I was shooting Edox uh, uh, CMS twenty two Pro, which is a, a twenty ISO film. It's actually a, technically a twelve ISO film, and. Um, and it's, it's slow, man. It's super complicated to develop. Um, or or su- super restrictive, and I really, but I really wanted to see what I got. Okay. It's supposed to be the highest resolving thing on Earth. Okay, wow. <laughs> so uh, it's a it it. Uh, but I can tell you, I shot it. My most my my highest resolving lens is a a, a Leica Elmeret four. And I shot it at f11 and f16 and brights on the Elmer at four, and I zoomed in on it, and it out resolved the lens. I couldn't see the grain. Wow, yeah. it was wild. And then, so how do you keep the dust off of things? I know you have a cat. They have a cat <laughs> in a really dusty apartment. Um, it's do you have like a drying situation? That, like, no, and okay. I never have a dust problem either. Okay, and, and, the, and I and, and I dry the film in the bathroom with my cat's litter box. Okay, <laughs> basically, I, I I run the you know I run the water uh, in the bathroom in the shower for about five minutes. I hang it up. I take it out of the shower. Um, I never have dust issues. Okay, thank goodness. Yeah. Okay, good to know. You were speaking about your lenses and cameras. Can you take us through your camera collection, a little tour of what you use for, say, street documentary and what you might use on the balcony? Yeah, it's um, for street photography, um, I like small and I like quiet. Um, so mostly like M's. So my favorite is the M2 because I do stuff these rolls on, on the film and I, each roll is going to have 40 to 45 or 42 to 45 shots. And on a, and on the M2, you can see it go around. You see exactly where you are. Okay. Um, I also just like the simplicity of the M2. They tend to be quieter. I have an M4 and M6, which I don't like as much. Um, Interesting. M3 is a great camera. It's very quiet, but I tend to shoot wide. 
So it's uh, before the pandemic, I was shooting mostly 35 uh, millimeter lenses. Right. Now I'd say I shoot 28 a wow. lot more. Okay. Yeah. Um, and that's not possible on the M3. The, well, a- it's yeah. I can. I, I you can put twenty eight, but the um, the viewfinder is oh, optimized for fifty. I mean, for you 50. can go in an accessory viewfinder or something right. like that. I see I what mean, you're saying. And yeah. if I go super wide with like I have a twenty one super angle on, I'll put that on the M3 with an accessory finder. Okay. Um, yeah. But uh, but mostly you know mostly I shoot the M's. Um, lately, I've been getting into this ridiculous camera called the what used to be the Vivitar Ultra Slim and Wide, which is a twenty two millimeter lens. It's get it from B and H for twenty nine bucks. Right. And uh it's remarkable how well that camera resolves. Wow. Um but you know you're limited to F eleven and one one hundred. So okay. you know pick your film based on the day. Yeah. Um yeah. but that's basically, you know, my 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 street kit when I'm out shooting on the street, especially for a long time, is I'll take two M bodies, one color, one black and white, one uh, uh, 35 Simicron, 28 Elmerit, maybe actually my favorite 28 is the, the 1958 5.6 Sumeron. You usually have one camera on you? Two. Two, okay. Yeah. One color, one black and white? Yeah. Oh, okay. It's a, like one wide, one not so one wide. One wide, one not so wide, and I'll swap the lenses right, around. Right, Except for with the 500T, I'm shooting with an 85B filter to account for the tungsten film. Right, okay. So, but, so, so it works on one lens. Well, one, no, one body if the... No, it actually... I, I find... I was kind of surprised by this, that uh, 85B is great with black and white, too. It adds oh, just oh, a little right bit at, of contrast. Right it's at. almost like a yellow filter. Oh. Um, so it goes back and forth pretty easily. But, you know, it's... I I... I used to carry one body with me and, you know, a couple different rolls of film. But I would, whenever I wanted, I, w- I would see something that would be in color and I had black and white film, and it would always be the opposite. So the two bodies uh, solve that. I don't always shoot both of them, but at least I have them on me if I want them. Yeah. I so, like the balance it brings. <laughs> Hang one from each shoulder. I like I'm a little less lean. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. it's uh, you know. Each hand. But the but the but the M's are great. They're quiet, and especially uh, in street photography, where you really need the stealth approach, right? Uh, or the stealth approach helps, um, particularly after the pandemic, and uh, you know the the nature of people's expectation of privacy is different, right? Yeah, and uh, it, it's we're, we're seeing that ease up a little bit, but especially right after the first of the pandemic, you walk out with a camera, and people would freak out. Okay, you know? I yeah. also like the outside space seemed a little less friendly yeah than it, than it did before but that's relative too yeah i mean there's there was no question about that i was wondering what drew you specifically to street photography because that's what i, I see a lot of on your instagram and like you were saying you have to be stealth and sometimes people expect certain things for their privacy it, it i was just wondering was there a moment where you knew okay this is what i want to do no matter what the obstacles are or i mean it's you know, it, I guess it goes back to think about influences on photography. I mean, okay. look around you here. I mean, a lot of figurative art, narrative art, that yeah. sort of thing. And uh, street photography is, I mean, I, I have this, it sounds pretentious, um, but I, I call street photography is the lyric of the quotidian. Hmm. It's, the, it's the, the magic that happens every day that we don't really focus on unless it's, you know, we, we see it and in an instant you can photograph and you say, oh, yeah. That's, uh, I mean, to to um, a certain extent, uh, 
you know, when you get, we're talking about Eggleston, it's uh, the things that are attractive about Eggleston is you, 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 you is a picture of a bathroom reminds you of your grandmother's bathroom, right, yeah. or something like that. So it's that, you know, the, the, the beauty of the day to day. Um, I also love the city. Always, I love everything about the city. Um, you know, the architecture, the the human interaction, but the city is is its people. Yeah. And we saw that in the pandemic when you go around and shoot the city, it was completely empty, and it just um, it was it, it was frightening. It seemed sort of inhuman. Um, and if you and and my street photography isn't so much right up and close and in front i you know i'd use the wide lenses i'm, I'm at a 28 sometimes a 21 millimeter lens okay yeah, right. um so as you see the context of the city um sometimes you miss the interactions but you know the city the light everything else is is all part of it so um you know it's it's um it's street-ish okay <laughs> i think it's uh you know, it's a, at risk of seeming like uh, Santos. Right. <laughs> well, that's really interesting because um, you mentioned something about your grandfather saying you need to shoot people in black and white. So with street photography, you're saying you'll get the human interaction with the view of the city. But outside of that, have you ever shot portraiture or have you ever dealt with shooting people just in a one-on-one Situation or is that something you're interested in? Only if, and that's it's not something I'm interested. in. Okay. Only only if I'm asked. I mean, okay. um, I've shot portraits of people. Um, I have two college age sons. One of them I shot uh, just recently. Shot a couple of portraits of. Right. Um, it's uh, portraiture doesn't really interest me. I think what might interest me would be environmental portraiture, where you're shooting someone in you know in their workplace yeah. or um, because that is because it's it's more about the the interaction it's more i think there there needs to be more narrative to interest me okay yeah i understand um, or there needs to be an interpretation of a narrative okay it's right. you know it, it it needs to um i want it to be reflective i mean portraiture is about the subject and uh the subject that i'm interested in is not necessarily the subject of photo mm. yeah and also the i believe you're saying the slrs you have those stay in the apartment or was that what you were saying earlier? Uh, they pretty much stay in the apartment because they're too heavy. And I, I, I love Nikons. I love the Nikkor lenses. Um, it's, but you carry around a Nikon F two of them. They're really heavy. I don't know how the guys did it in you know, Vietnam. Right. <laughs> um, but, uh, and also they're, you know, when you shoot them, they go off like a cannon. Yeah. So they're not stealth at all. Right. But I, you know, I, I do use them. I mean, there's, there's a couple there. It's, you know, one, one has FP4. I've got another one actually is Portrait 800. Um, I do a lot of shooting off of this Terrace of the Moon. Oh, Which okay. is something I really love to shoot. Um, and that's really where the Nikons come in. I do take them on the street occasionally. If I, um, if I'm, I'm at, like an event where I need a longer lens or something like that. Cause I won't with the Leica, I won't go any longer than a 35. I just, yeah. I mean, I have, I have fifties. I, I rarely shoot them. I have nineties. I have one thirty five. So like, I, I just don't use them. Right. Um, but if I'm going that long, I'll, I'll use an SLR. Right. You mentioned, so you shoot the moon a lot and I was wondering, did you ever do any or have any interest in like a, a series of, certain types of photographs that you wanted to either print or publish or anything like that? 
I thought about it. You know, it's uh, I really haven't done much with my work other than Instagram. Mm-hmm. Um, from Instagram, I've sold a number of prints. And oh, interestingly, the, the ones that people seem to love are the ones on the moon. There aren't very many on there. Uh, and I waste a lot of film on the moon. Very hard <laughs> to shoot in film. Um, but, uh, yeah, it might be something I would like to do. I've had a website domain name for ages to put some, you know, some, some work up there. Uh, there's a number of photographers that, uh, that are here in my building that have been encouraging me to do something more. Um, but, you know, all of that takes a lot of work and a lot of time. And if I have time, I, I want to be out creating more imagery. Okay. Uh, it's, I mean, I have a lot of stuff that, I probably should do something with. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, you know, it's a. Uh, I just keep creating more. Right. Yeah. I. I just. Um, I would definitely love to see, like, a website or a collection of images, or if you were published or something like that. So um, that's the reason I asked. And I know that when we first met back in the summer, um, you were talking about. I asked you what was your favorite film to shoot on and you said uh, Kodachrome and so I was wondering what do you miss the most about shooting on Kodachrome um yeah, just the, the the look of it you know it's uh, and and some of it is nostalgia right it's uh because it's uh and that's the the, the beauty of that highly saturated film when you think about it's all it's at the end of it it's, at the end of the day it's all nostalgia yeah um and when I process my 500T, uh, I try to make give it that Kodachrome look. You know, I, in my agitations give it that extra contrast. Um, it's I, I never amp stuff in post. You know, I'll I'll would uh, I I'll, I'll scan out and I'll you know, I do some adjustments in contrast and that sort of thing. If something's blown out, but I'll never take something and amp it up. Yeah. I generally, don't have to. I mean, it's if if you if you know your film stock, if you know how to process it, you can create the image that you want without having to mess around. And yeah. I mean, I just, I have Lightroom. I think I've used it twice. Oh, the, really? only, the only thing I use Lightroom for is, is my scan. I don't have a scanner for, I, I shoot large format too. Okay. So I don't have a scanner for five by seven. So I, I scan each half and I stitch it together in Lightroom. That's the only thing I use Lightroom for. Wow, large format. We it's funny we were talking about that on uh, a couple of of episodes, uh, one that's going to come out. And um Stephen, I was wondering like for you, do you find when shooting on large format that you have a like a when you've done it in the past, do you have like a different eye that you approached it with than shooting 35 or medium? I've mostly struggled with larger format. Okay. <laughs> yeah. It's it's like a a great day to take two pictures right. <laughs> or like I, I just it's it's a really nice thought process and I think it's a really good way to balance out a little of a different type of photograph taking but yeah what, what, what size do you shoot um, I shot four by five yeah. Yeah. yeah you said five by seven Alfred I do I have four by five and five by okay seven. So it's uh, I, I started out with a five by seven, which I prefer. I mean, there aren't a lot of stocks in five by seven. You can't get color in five by seven, um, but I prefer the aspect ratio of five by seven more than a four by five. But um, I found uh, 
yeah, I, I found a four by five field camera that had the movements that I wanted on it and it came with a couple lenses. And so I picked it up and I've shot more of the four by five. I mean, it's just, it's more user friendly. It's cheaper. Yeah. Um, and, um, and, but you're right. You you go out. I, last year, in fact, it was about this time last year, I took a seminar with Lois Connor, who's, uh, um, she is a pretty well known large format artist and, uh, and it was, you know, when you're in a seminar like that, you have to produce every week. And it was like, you, you know, I had to produce 20 nice images. Oh, wow. <laughs> so I was, you know, I was out shooting. And that's, that's a lot when you're, you know, you're shooting four by five, um, especially you, you, you get out there and, you know, take, and, and, and the whole goal was to really take full advantage of the camera movements for the depth of field and that sort of thing. And do your whole shine flug theory or whatever it's called. Yeah. Um, but, um, but it's a, it's a, for me, it's a different way of thinking, but it's not a different way of thinking. It's, uh, it, it's the exact opposite of shooting street. So, you know, if I'm at shooting street, right. and I'm, you know, with my Leica M and my 28 Sumicron or Sumeron lens, I'm range focusing, first of all. So I'm stopped down to 11. I know where my focus is. It's basically point and shoot and working very, very fast. Um, large formats the other end of the spectrum yeah it's um and i find even here right a, a 5x7 i'll set it up on a terrace the clouds look great um i'm out shooting with you know either medium format or or 35 and by the time i get the large format camera set up the photo i wanted it's gone yeah. so it's that's the that's the challenge yeah yeah so what brought you to shooting large format and, and what do you look to shoot whenever you're in that mode um it's i i basically look for texture texture and light you know it's it's i there are certain things that i keep on coming back to in shooting um bryant park carousel for instance very challenging oh, okay very challenging subject to shoot because yeah. carousel is always in shade and the background's always light okay um but um the things that you see every day look different in large format. Right. So yeah. it's um, it's kind of seeing things in the city for the first time. Um, Marble Collegiate Church, uh, the Flatiron Building. Um, it's uh, there isn't any one particular thing, and I haven't. I'm still exploring with it, so I haven't shot enough of it. And I want to shoot more five by seven, but it's just really hard to lug a rail five by seven rail camera in the city. It's really heavy. Yeah. And, you know, and the film holders and everything else. Right, yeah. yeah. Then you have to process it. Right, yeah. Well, it's interesting because, you know, you, you have all this technical knowledge and you've got this great eye, and so you've created a workflow where you're developing it yourself and you're saving money. But street photography, by its nature, you're, you're shooting a lot. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering what keeps you personally shooting film so much when you're working in that way? What keeps you shooting film um i like the look at the film i like i like everything about shooting film i like the you know I, I i love gadgets i love the mechanical nature of the process um the you know the loading the film um the you know the pageantry of it um the magic of the development of it there's no magic digitally just you know you yeah. get an image um it's in the ability to create it, it's more of a craft and yeah. um you know and i don't i'm not a 
spray and pray kind of guy. I mean, right, I, right, I, yeah. I, I shoot, I shoot with a certain degree of deliberation, but you know, if you're out on the street, you are shooting fast. You're shooting a big volume of film. Right. And, um, you know, that's why you're working with the Eastman film, the, the, the cinema stock saves a fair amount of money. Right. You yeah. know, but when it comes, you know, it comes out and you develop, you can save a lot. I mean, you could develop yourself for a buck a roll right. cheaper. Okay. Um, but, uh, you know, and through, the way I do it, it's five bucks a roll for film. Wow! But you know, it's wow. uh, <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. Amazing. When you put portraits now, I think you know <laughs> a, a box of five is like ninety five. Yeah, bucks yeah, or exactly. It's crazy. Yeah, yeah. So, Stephen, I know you like to shoot Fuji a lot, and I was wondering, um, since Fuji is kind of getting out of the film business, do you still have a, a loyalty to it because of the look with the blues and the greens, or? Um, since I've been trying to shoot more pictures recently, uh, I've been down to experiment with more film types. I think I know how things look on Fuji, and the consistency of it is um, relieving to me. But I also just found Kodak to be too yellow. But like I, I'm 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 down to just like switch it up and have some variety in the mix. Yeah. In the, in the Fuji C200 now is is Kodak Gold or the Kodak yeah Kodak Gold. Oh really? Yeah. Wow. So Fuji bought the stock from Kodak. That is my understanding. Oh wow! Wow, I did not know that. Okay, yeah. Well, I Alfred, I know when we first met, you were saying yeah, Fuji got out of the film business. What's your opinion on um, the way that they've kind of basically turned their back on on film? Um, I mean, they're still in the film business, yeah. but I think you know, Fu- I, I think Fuji is is probably. If they're still making film, and then in five years from now, I'd be surprised. Right. I mean, maybe the, 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 they'll make, their Chrome stock is great. I mean, everything they make is great. Um, it's uh, you know, frankly, I think I would shoot Fuji Xterra 400 over Kodak Portrait any day of the week. I really? just think it looks way better. You don't have the range. Um, Could you expound on that a little more? Yeah, it's more highly saturated, and it's easier to scan. Okay. That's it's good a, to hear. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a uh, um, and two hundred. Well, if you like Kodak Gold, then two hundred is there. Um, it's uh, you know, Fuji. Fuji makes some damn good gear. I mean, the um, I don't know a lot about their cameras. From what I've seen, the imagery that comes off of their smaller cameras looks great. Yeah. Um, and obviously, they're doing something right there. Yeah, and yeah. I think that's you know, for the most part, that's going to be the future of photography. Future photography is not in film, right? Of course, the you know, film is. Oh, I, I think film is always going to be out there as an adjunct to it. And I think, as I said before, because of Hollywood, and there's always going to be directors that want to shoot in film. Uh, Kodak will continue to invest in it, but look, Kodak is not investing in any more development processes. They're, they're not investing in any more black and white development processes after Xtol, which is their last most technic- supposedly the most advanced developer. And it's already pretty old at this point. Yeah, it's pretty old. Um, and it's, I mean, it, it's most labs are going to be using Xtol because it's most environmentally friendly, and it can it, most films look good in Xtol. Um, yeah, Ilford continues to chug away. Um, it's uh, and if you if you look at it, if you look at all the film stocks out there, most everything Il, Ilford's Har, Ilford's Harmon. What's it called? Kentmere. Kentmere is rebranded by everybody. Is um, is their own stock. And the same thing with uh, Fomapan. Oh, 
It's uh, Arista 100 is Fomapan. Um, all of the um, Agfa APX is Fomapan. I believe it's either that or, or Kentmere. We've hit the technological plateau of photography. Yeah, of film <laughs> photography. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's um, but in terms of you know where do we go with new stocks? I mean, you see new stocks being released right now, which are basically it's uh, you know it's, it's someone's taking Vision Three and calling it something else. Um, Wolfen has come out with some new color stock. I haven't shot it. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, and someone else was going to come out with a color stock. I think I think Japan Camera Hunter was talking about coming out with a oh, color really? stock. Yeah, which know, would be interesting. Yeah, yeah, because I know he has black and white stock. Yeah, yeah. He, he has the the, the uh, Japan Street Pan, which is a really bad yeah. film. Okay, um, but yeah, Bellamy was going to come out with I think a Chrome, wow. which is pretty aggressive. Yeah, actually, I want to go back to something you were talking about how. With your process, you have um, you know color negative that you try to develop to look similar to Kodachrome. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering, did you make a decision to say, you know what, I could shoot Fuji Chrome film or Kodak. I, I could shoot color slide film, color positive film, but instead I'll shoot color negative and try to make it look like like slide film it, yeah because color negative is easy to work with i right, mean I, okay. I there first of all there aren't a lot of chrome films to shoot um and uh i mean ectochrome 100 is fine i was shooting some today oh cool um but you know it's funny i had that i had an old roll last of a hundred foot roll of kodachrome 64 from 1984 i shot out, shot out the last of it uh at the fireworks of fourth of july and damn, if that film just didn't blow Ectochrome 100 away. Really? I mean, you know, 40 years old, wow. um, it still was great. Wow. Um, so, you know, I, 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 I haven't shot the Fuji Chromes in a long time, um, but I just don't shoot that much chrome. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's more difficult to develop. I can do it. Looks good. Yeah. But... Um, it's. Uh, I do have a project I want to do with large format chromes, um, but uh, it's. They still make this. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. There's like a Kodak Ektachrome and a. So Kodak Ektachrome in four by not in five by seven. Right. Um, I think they have four by five and eight by ten. Hmm. Wow. So. Could you tell us a little bit about that project, or are you going to keep it a secret? I'll keep it a secret. Okay, it's kind of, right. it's kind of silly, but it's okay. you know it, it's uh, it, it's something I I would like to do, um, but uh, mainly I just want to see how those four by five crumbs yeah, yeah. on the table, you know? <laughs> yeah, it, I I love love color slide film. Um, I loved the Velvia fifty, which Fuji no longer makes anymore. Provia 100 is good, but Velvia 50 to me was slide film that was the closest to looking like Kodachrome that I had seen. But um, speaking of being excited and, and loving film stocks, first, Stephen, I want to ask you, does it, because as Alfred was saying, the future of film is not, or excuse me, the future of photography is not film, but does it make you feel more optimistic when you see so many young people that are getting into film and and going kind of crazy about it and in, in, in this kind of niche culture. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah, I think the, it's like a trying to, like, look back at work people have done before you and learn from it. Right. 
um, and then try to like be able to play in a medium that you've been inspired by too. Yeah. Alfred, what about you? Have you noticed that as well? Or Look, I, I always encourage um, younger people in you know, the world of film, um, and I think it's great. I think that for a lot of them it's a bit of a gimmick. It's it's sort of like uncovering your grandparents' record player <laughs> yeah. and you know getting out their uh, you know, Leonard Cohen albums <laughs> or something. Um, but uh, and whether you know, particularly with price increases on yeah. film, whether that's going to you know, kill the it's not even a golden goose. I mean, people are not spending and shooting a ton. They're just it's there's there's a lot of hype about it. I think it's I think that part of it's going to die off a little bit. Yeah, but, yeah. I wonder if the trend will keep going. Probably not because it's a trend. Uh, but, but I wonder also how like undergrad um, and people studying photography, like will the will the will the trend end up like solidifying. Um, film photography within like the learning process for institutions yeah um, or will it just be a part of like the timely fad right um, and like uh, I know people are going to be doing teaching black and white for sure which is a great introduction to photography but um, I don't know if like color will ever be able to be taught in film again I you know it's it's I think most of what the color would that would be taught is mostly on the print side but I don't think that where people anybody focuses on what you can do with color on the develop on the film developing side right it's everyone just says c41 and c41 and c41 you give it to Dwayne reed you give it to anybody you're going to get the same thing back yeah it's because the machines are all designed to do that right but if you process yourself you can do i mean you can't do as much as you can with black and white because there are all sorts of different developers with different stocks and there's different chemistry right. but you have a lot of leeway in what you can do um but nobody's out there. Nobody's teaching it. Nobody's focusing on it. Nobody's blogging about it. Nobody really cares about it. They just want to get it done. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. And also, I wanted to go back because um, one of the last things I wanted to know was you said growing up you didn't necessarily have like big film photographers as your inspiration. But today, are there photographers from the past or currently who inspire you? Um. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's I, I'm inspired by a lot of you know, contemporary photographers, a lot of New York photographers. Um, Ruben Radding is a great street photographer here in New York who's uh, fantastic. He's very inspiring. Um, his approach to imagery is um, very different than than a lot of other photographers. Um, it's um, the uh, you know Don Hudson. Um, it's uh, I'm so bad with names. I actually wrote some of these down. So I knew oh, that's okay. <laughs> it's um, uh, Richard Sandler. You know, I, th- I think is great. Uh, David Carroll, um, Godless, um, the young guy who's one a uh, member of uh, NYC SPC, um, Jonathan Walker. I think he's absolutely terrific. Um, extremely inspiring. Um, David Mullen. Who's a cinematographer? He did the the marvelous Miss Maisel. Oh, fantastic, okay. fantastic photographer. But you know, in terms of inspiration, I I I'm not really inspired as much by other photographers as I am by philosophy, literature, oh. painting, art. Yeah, you know, it's a, I'm, I'm probably more inspired by Richard Russo and Herman Melville than oh, I wow. am by um, you know Eggleston. Okay, so it's uh, you know, and all sort of gets back to that 
narrative um, that narrative aesthetic. Well, sometimes and, seeing other people's pictures make you not want to take your own. <laughs> yeah, sometimes. Yeah, it's or um, sometimes you just there's just too much. You're just looking at too many pictures and it becomes right. overwhelming. Or then they start to seep into your brain and you're like, well, I don't want to make pictures like that person, so I should probably not look at those pictures all the time. And and that's a bad thing about. Instagram too, right? Because you can you can scroll through fifteen hundred pictures, and you know, as opposed right. to sitting down with somebody's zine or something in your hand or or something like that. I think you know, it's one of the the best quotes about inspiration came from. I think it was David Carroll, my doing Richard Sandler, where he said, um, "Make the imagery that you want to see." And when I uh, approach my own imagery, that's what, you know, I'm, I'm trying to create something that I can't buy or I can't see. Yeah. Or, you know, I, I do a bit of writing also. So I'm, I'm writing I'm writing a novel I can't buy. You know? right, so, yeah. um, and that's really what keeps me out there every day or, you know, every time I can to be out shooting uh, is to try to make that thing that I can't find anywhere else. Yeah. So you write fiction also. I, I do I'm, I, I I write some short not published write some short stories I've been on and off as so many people are working on a novel um, and uh, you know we'll see where that goes so do you because I write fiction as well do you find that sometimes it's difficult to sort of compartmentalize part of your brain that writes fiction and the other part that that no, does photography okay just i find the, it do, do, just the opposite in fact I, okay. when, when i'm shooting well i'm writing well oh okay that's and, great that's you know, great when to I, hear. It, it's i find that the, the two of them work in absolute harmony and if i if i have a great day of shooting then you know i'll try to sit down and write a little bit yeah um but when the desert is dry, it's dry for both. Right. It's, okay. It's, it's, ne- it's never it's never compartmentalizing because one of them sort of informs the other, uh, at least with sort of the subject matter that I'm focusing on in my writing. Okay. Um, yeah. It's um, but uh, yeah, it's it's sort of seamless. Yeah, and I know that uh, you know right now today was a really nice day. The sun's starting to come out. What is it that you're looking forward to the most with spring and summer and going out and shooting? Flowers, summer. flowers. It's been you know it's it. Uh, everyone talks about global warming. It was it it was a warm winter, but it was a dismal winter. The one thing that I love so much about New York winters is the light, and we just didn't have great light this winter. And yeah. you know, I my favorite condition to go shoot in is high contrast, low horizon light, and. Um, didn't get enough of that. Oddly enough, on some of the hot, humid days in the summer of all times, we had amazing light. I don't know what's going on, um, but that's what I'm looking forward forward to the most. I, you know, I love when the tulips come out and, the, and people are back on the streets again. And when people are, you know, it, it's it was great. I I I, I did one a one day shoot. Like the one of the most recent things I posted on Instagram walking up Fifth Avenue, and people are dressing up again. People are wearing suits. People are wearing, you know, fancy clothes again. It was, uh, for a while, we were seeing people in sweatpants. And uh, so, you know, New York fashion is back. People are, you know, people are shaking off the pandemic blues. And, uh, you know, it's great to see that interaction on the street again. And uh, it's still not the same as it was before. Um, But, you know, and it's that dynamic of change that provides subject matter. So... (laughs) 